I've often said this, and it's probably not an easy thing uh, to wrap your mind around if it's the first time you've heard it, that the Bible is not first inspired history. Certainly it is a historical text in the sense that what is being interpreted in that text are historical events, but it's not first an inspired history. What the Bible is primarily is an inspired interpretation of history. Uh, I think what we have been given is the meaning of history in the scriptures. And of course, the interpretation being offered is based on historical events as they were recorded and codified by the people of Israel and then by the apostles of Jesus and their immediate disciples in the New Testament. So, so I do have a presupposition that Israel gets it right um, about God, that, that they're not um, saying things about God that are untrue. I, I have that presupposition, so obviously that's going to slant my interpretation. But I also have a difficulty with the implications of claiming that the prophets of Israel who gave us um, the 39 books of the Old Testament over the course of uh, a little less than 1,500 years, I have difficulty calling them blasphemers. And uh, I think there are a lot of ripple effects to making that claim about the people of Israel. Blasphemy, technically, is doing or saying something in God's name that God has not commanded or said. It's about as simple as blasphemy gets. Doing or saying something in God's name that God has not commanded or said. And of course, if Israel claims that God told them to do certain things, like to destroy the Amalekites, which is what I want to talk with you about today, if Israel's wrong about that, if they claim that they attacked the Amalekite people under the leadership of King Saul, be, at God's behest, because the prophet Samuel told Saul that that's what God wanted done, and uh, Samuel rightly heard from God, and that's what God wanted done. If they claim all that, but it wasn't true, either Samuel did not really hear from God, he just had an axe to grind with the Amalekites, and he tried to give Saul divine approval, or if the prophets of Israel simply were wrong, they simply put that um, out in that way, but it Matter of fact, God never commanded such a thing and never would. If that's true, then they are essentially blasphemers. And that trickle effect goes way beyond the Amalekites because Israel is commanded to do a whole lot of things uh, in the history of Israel that, uh, given the way Jesus is generally read today, we might say Jesus would never command us today uh, to do. So what do we do with, with that? Well, for me... I'm assuming that they're correct, and so I'm in probably the unenviable, but I think the more biblical uh, position of having to explain why God would have commanded Israel to wipe out the Amalekites, men, women, and children. Not easy. Not easy. And I know it's a, it's a difficulty for a great number of Christians, so I'm going to do my best um, to explain, and I'm not going to take uh, that kind of easy shortcut that, that all ethics are based on God's command. So if God's commands it, it, it's ethical for that moment. An argument can be made in that direction, but I think I want to come at this slightly differently. I think with a bit more nuance than that. So look, if you have a Bible, you can look with me at 1 Samuel. This is the command that we are uh, first and foremost concerned with. It's 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, 
The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And we find in the text that Saul goes on to do that very thing, almost. He does not kill them all, but he is commanded in the text to kill them all. This is pejoratively labeled today as the Amalekite genocide, and in some ways that's apt because the language here is quite aggressive and does it's genocidal, without a question. I've had some professors who have tried to kind of soften the text by saying that this is hyperbole of sorts, that wipe out men, women, and children, animals, and all that is not actually commanding total eradication, but it's a way of saying um, defeat the city uh, in hyperbolic terms. And that's possible, but still it's, it's quite aggressive language, and if Israel followed it um, to a T, hyperbole or not, we would effectively have a genocide. Now we know that they did not follow this to a T and that that was a problem for the prophet Samuel when King Saul spared the royal family, the family of King Agag. This is an aggressive text. It certainly does not sound like something Jesus would ever command of Christians today. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, which I take to be sort of a quintessential um, recapitulation of the heart and spirit of the Law of Moses, where it was pointed, re-expressed by Jesus in terms that become normative for the Christian community. That's the way I understand it anyway. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, forgive those who sin against you. It doesn't sound uh, like an ethic that would lead nations to war. So how do we reconcile that with this command in 1 Samuel? Well, as I said, I, I, don't, I think it's, a, it's a sloppy thinking and, and lazy thinking in some ways to simply say, well, the Israelites got it wrong. Clearly, these two things don't add up. So we'll just choose Jesus over uh, Samuel, and we can go on our happy way. I don't think that's quite accurate. So I'm going to approach this in a couple of ways. First, there is a history behind the conflict with the Amalekites that probably... Uh, bears interpreting a bit, or at least bears studying, so we're aware that this isn't like the first moment uh, of the conflict between the, the Amalekites and the people of God. And you, you can tell that anyway in the text of 1 Samuel 15, because he's referring to an incident that happened when Israel was first delivered from slavery in Egypt that is precipitating this eventual uh, war that God's commanding. So, look back, if you have your Bible, I'm going to turn here to Genesis uh, chapter 15. This is really, I think, where some of it begins. So, Genesis chapter 15 is the famously understood to be the moment in which God makes his first covenant with Abraham, or at least truly cuts a covenant, to use the Hebrew language. And in the midst of explaining uh, the conditions of this covenant, God says something about the people who live in the land of Canaan, who he calls the Amorites in this context. But the Amalekites certainly are in view here. So this is Genesis chapter 15. I'll start reading verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. 
Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for four hundred years. So that is the God's prophecy of the slavery in Egypt. Verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here, your, your descendants, back here to the land of Canaan. In the fourth generation, so it's really after 400 years, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So what God is saying in Genesis, or at least the prophets are helping us to understand God was preparing Abraham and his descendants for, is that they would not immediately receive the land of Canaan because there is some sort of a period of mercy that's being extended to the people who live there. They're being given 400 years. Turns out, I think, to be about 450, um, though sometimes it's hard to exactly discern the numbers. But they're being given about 400 years. Um, for what? It's hard to say. We don't have the story of what God was doing with them. Did he send them prophets? It's hard to say. There certainly uh, were people in the land of Canaan during Abraham's lifetime, like Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem, which eventually becomes Jerusalem, who seemed to have knowledge of the God uh, who was speaking to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So it's hard to know what God was doing with the people of Canaan during those 400 years. But God is not going to destroy them uh, earlier than that. So there is a sense that there's some mercy at work here, and it's a story that we that's hinted at in the text, but we don't really have the full story. So part of what we have to say is we don't really know very much about God's history with the people in the land of Canaan and what he was doing to try and turn them away from some of the wicked behavior that they were involved in over the course of time that Israel was in Egypt in slavery, because we really only have Israel's story, but it's hinted at here, so that's interesting. And then in the book of Exodus, in chapter 17, when the Israelites have been delivered from slavery in Egypt, but they're still uh, quite weak. This is very, very early on. I mean, they don't really have weapons, and they're not warriors at this point. The people of Amalek um, attack them at their weakest to see if they can wipe them out. And there's, we don't know really why. Maybe Israel was passing through their territory, or maybe they were working at the behest of the Egyptians. It's, it's hard to say. But in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, we find these words. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some men for us and go out, fight with Amalek. But if we skip forward to verse 14, we find these words after the Amalekites are defeated and Israel survives that onslaught during a period of weakness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a reminder in a book and recite it in the hearing of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, A hand upon the banner of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So the sense in, in Exodus is that the Amalekites attacked Israel right on the cusp of their coming out of slavery in Egypt, right when God was getting ready to establish them as a nation. They have not yet even received the law of Moses. And so 
in a cosmic sense, the Amalekites had come in and tried to wipe out the Israelites before God could even establish them as a people, before they could receive the law, before they could make the covenant, and before the process by which all of us have been saved through Jesus could even begin. So the Amalekites come in for some reason, and they try and stop that entire process. And that is a huge deal to God. Lots of people attack the Israelites over the course of their history. But none get the treatment that Amalek gets. There's something about the Amalekites' attack of Israel at this point in their history and the consequences that could have fallen out from that decision that set them apart specially for God's vengeance. That's interesting, but they don't get wiped out right away. From this point, it's quite a number of years. There's some debate over how long the period of Judges is. But Israel gets into the land. They conquer um, the land of Canaan under Joshua after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, as you, as you probably remember. And, uh, and then they settle in the land, and we have a period of the Judges, which the book of Judges chronicles, and scholars sort of debate its length, 400 years maybe, maybe, maybe more or less. And then after that, Israel asks for a king. King Saul is that first king. And it's under King Saul that God finally commands the Israelites to go to war with the Amalekites. So there's a period of grace given to the Amalekites. They're not wiped out immediately. God gives them uh, quite a number of centuries. And again, for what, to what end? At the very least, we can say that God is being merciful. Uh, there's a sense in Exodus that the Amalekites deserved to be finished for their, their unprovoked attack on Israel um, in Exodus 17, but God did not do that. He delayed his wrath, for lack of a better word, uh, until this period of 1 Samuel. So there's some of that history, and, and we can't set aside how important that history is, because Amalek tried to destroy the people of God before they could even be established. That is a, a problem for God, and it's not just a problem in the First Testament, and that's kind of what I want to point out. In 1 Corinthians, in the New Testament, Paul is talking about divisions in the Church of God uh, in the, in the, among the people of Corinth. And in that context, he describes the people of God as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he says this very strong language uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? You all are God's temple, the, the churches in Corinth, the church of God, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. There's still very strong language in the New Testament with, with respect to the way that God responds to those who try to undo his work in the world for salvation. Like, there, there are many, it's even brought up in the Gospels when Jesus says every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Blasphemy against the Father, blasphemy against the Son. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. We're still borrowing from this same general biblical idea that God can handle all kinds of, of, of wickedness and, and they can be forgiven through repentance and, and the grace of God, fundamentally by the death of Jesus. But there's a certain kind of atrocity that is so detrimental to the salvation of souls, that is so pernicious, 
that, that attempts to stop God, shorten his tracks and his plans to redeem all things. That, that kind of a sin is going to bring God's vengeance. Essentially, that's the history the Amalekites are caught up in. And you might argue that they didn't realize what was at stake. Uh, and maybe they did, maybe they didn't. The judge of all the earth will do right. But all of that's important when we think about what the command of God to Saul to kill the Amalekites, to wipe out that nation. So that's kind of part one of my response. My point in talking about all that is to give a little historical context, but also to show that the two testaments are not in disagreement about this general uh, impulse. So that's important for us to notice. But secondly, there's also a question as to what the relationship is between the Old Covenant and the New, between the teachings of Jesus and the kinds of things that God was commanding in the covenant given to Moses and to Israel at Mount Sinai. And that is a, a challenging conversation. So I want to begin exploring that idea by thinking about something that Jesus said that provides a window into the law of Moses that I think before Jesus or apart from Jesus we might never have had eyes to see. And so I'm in the Gospel of Matthew, but I think the same uh, exchange occurs in the Gospel according to Mark. But I'm in Matthew uh, chapter 19. And uh, I'm going to read this, but I'll explain it just a little bit. The Pharisees are asking Jesus about divorce, and they don't like Jesus' response. And it's the exchange here that reveals something about the law given to Moses that is not readily apparent, but I think can be helpful as we think about the relationship between the covenants. Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee, went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he cured them there. Some Pharisees came to him, uh, and to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now that would seem to fly against uh, the law of Moses, because the law of Moses talks about giving your wife a certificate of divorce. And that's what they say. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? And Jesus is very, very picky about the language here, because remember, they said, why did Moses command us? And Jesus sort of corrects them. He said to them, it was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of the heavens. Let anyone accept this who can. Very, very hard teaching of Jesus, I think we have to admit. But he reveals something about the law of Moses that obviously the folks talking with him were not aware of, and they didn't seemingly agree with it when they heard it. And that is that the Law of Moses is not an ideal standard. 
that the law of Moses was a condescension to human weakness. That what was commanded there was taking into account where humanity was and what humanity was capable of. In fact, the law of Moses says as much when it says that this law is not so high that you can't reach it, but it's been brought down to you, it's near to you, so you could obey it. So there was a sense in Israel, in Jesus' day, that if you obeyed the law of Moses in its entirety, you would be holy. That this was the way God expected humans to live in an ideal situation. But Jesus reveals in these teachings about divorce that such is not the case. That the law of Moses allowed for behaviors that were not what God ideally wanted of humanity. So the law is a bit of a compromise standard. It is what God commanded of the people then. But it does not represent what God wants of his people for all time necessarily. And it's very hard to tell the difference which laws are condescensions and which laws are forever. Well, Jesus will help with that in the Sermon on the Mount as he begins to delineate where the law was pointing. So humanity is, to use the, the language of the history of Christian theology anyway, at least in the West, irredeemably curved in on itself. Humanity is irredeemably self-obsessed. And the law of Moses, oh, I mean, it really begins with Abraham and discussions with Noah. I mean, God's been working through much of human history. But the law is an attempt to turn humanity in the direction of what God wants of us. And so the law is meant to turn us. The turning is incomplete, but it turns us in the right direction. It begins to point us in the right direction. But the law, as Paul will say later in the book of Romans, is rooted in sin. It's a hard teaching because Paul also says the law is holy and righteous and good, and yet it is enslaved in some ways, rooted in sin. I think what Paul means, at least in part, is that our wickedness has dictated, in some way, where God had to start with us. And so, the scriptures more or less tell us that God is both working for us and against us in history. He's working for us and against us. So God is working for us in the sense that he is helping humanity to come to understand what its purpose is, what a godly life looks like, what a person living the fullness of what God created humanity to be looks like. The law is a first turning in that direction. It's not a complete turning. Jesus will help us to, to see where the law was beginning to turn us more fully, maybe even in, in great completeness. We see it lived out in Jesus. But the law was meant to turn an irredeemably self-obsessed humanity in that direction. And so it's, a, it's holy and righteous, but it's also constrained in some ways by the sinful hearts of the people and where we presently are. So in that way, God's working for us through law, through prophets, through teachings. He's, he's working for us, but he's also working against us. We see this in Genesis chapter 11. 
after the flood, when humanity is said to have filled the earth with violence, we can only imagine what that means, but in part it must mean that there was fighting amongst the people of the earth, and, and maybe it's more than that, we, we don't know. But the earth was full of violence, and so God wiped everybody out, and he started over with Noah. Well, humanity seems to have learned something from that experience, and so very early on, within a few generations following Noah, all the people of the earth gathered together to build a city. And they, they seem to be intent on building a one-world civilization, that they are not going to fight amongst themselves anymore, they're not going to fill the earth with violence, instead they're going to cooperate to build a kingdom on earth that would rival God's throne room in the heavens. At least that's the way Genesis 11 reads. And it's here that we find that God is against that project. So God is for us in the law, but he was against us at Babel. It's at Babel that he scrambles the languages of, of the earth, and it's the source of the varied nations of the earth. Uh, God stops us from working together. And he does it because he doesn't want us to achieve the building of Babel. You might ask why, and I think the sinfulness of the human heart is part of the reason. The achievement would outstrip the character and humanity would topple. That's my guess. That's reading uh, quite a lot of the rest of the story uh, into that initial story. But at the very least, we find there that God is against us. So God is both helping humanity to mature, to grow, and to find out who we are, but at the same time, he's thwarting our efforts, keeping us from moving too quickly. So those two things are happening. How does this connect with the Amalekites? Humanity has chosen a world in which we are fighting constantly for the resources of the earth. War is forever a part of a world that is constructed in terms of competition. So long as we are in competition with each other for the limited resources on earth, we will be at war with each other. And war is messy. One thing I see in the Old Testament is that Israel is not only chosen to declare a proper interpretation of her history to us that speaks more or less on God's behalf about the meaning of history and its trajectory prepares us for the coming of Jesus and then helps us to understand what his coming means for us. But Israel is also uh, chosen to live out the consequences of humanity's evil. And so God is very insistent that the consequences of the choices we make are fully seen. In some ways, it's why Jesus dies on the cross, and we could get into that, but that's a little deeper dive than I'm going to do today. But Israel's history must bear out the consequences of sin. As much as Israel was elected to reveal to us the Word of God, they are also elected to reveal to us the depths of human depravity. And that happens in various, various ways. But God wants to make sure that the decision to be in competition, the decision to war against others, the decision to live into sin,
requires, as a consequence, the clearing of a place for God to reestablish a humanity that can one day be a new humanity. He needs to make room in the cultural mess of the ancient Near East for a new culture operating out of new values. Not entirely new. They're rooted in the Middle East, and God is taking into account the limitations of that culture when he gives them the law, as we can see in Jesus. But he needs to carve out a place for them in a place where every place is taken. And that is what sin has done. It has overtaken every corner. There are no more unpolluted springs. And so in order to make a space for a new humanity, somebody will have to be cleared away. And that is the dreadful and terrible consequence of sin. And God wants Israel under no delusions. They don't get to have their cake and eat it too. The space that needs to be made for righteousness will not be able to be made with diplomacy or with, without casualty. When the wicked are punished, the innocent suffer with them. And that is the reality of the world. There is no justice that does not have collateral damage. And God is making sure the Israelites appreciate that. This is the consequence of the world you and I have chosen. The Amalekites must be wiped out in order for justice to be done and for the people of God to have a place. It's a terrible reality, but it is one we have chosen, and God will make sure through the people of Israel we see the true consequences. We are often in the West under a strange delusion that we have grown beyond our ancestors. And I think we're under the delusion that we can have our cake and eat it too in terms of the way our world is structured, the competition, the violence, the hate. And the Amalekite genocide reminds us that there is no way to live by the ethics of the world and not have to pay the price for that. Israel will pay the price too later for their own wickedness and their complicitness in the evil of the world as they are attacked by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. There's always a price to be paid for wickedness. And that's being played out in the Amalekite story. These are the consequences. Now the question is, how does this apply to the New Testament? Could a New Testament believer read the story in 1 Samuel and think that God might be commanding one of the nations of the earth to go and commit genocide against another nation? No, I don't think so. Why don't I think so? I do believe God commanded it of Israel, and I do believe he intended them to follow it. Of course, they didn't, and they paid the penalty. Saul did not kill the, the descendants of King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. And later on in the book of Esther, Mordecai, uh, a descendant of Israel, confronts a man named Haman, who is an Agagite, apparently a descendant of the king Saul did not destroy. And the bloodlust is still carried on in that line. And when Haman gets opportunity, tries to wipe out the people of Israel as vengeance for what they did to the Amalekites. This is sin. This is what God was trying to stop. As long as there are survivors, there is vengeance, there is hate, there is unforgiveness, and the war goes on. It never ends. In some ways, God is trying to show us through Israel what the consequences of our, our values, our wars, our, 
But a Christian could not justify today what God commanded of Israel in the past. Because Israel was a lived-out parable. They were called to reveal to us the consequences of our wickedness lived out in a national history and the Word of God speaking into that darkness that would turn us to the light. In Jesus, that Word that turns us to the light has been more fully expressed, more clearly articulated, because it wasn't just spoken, it was lived out in front of us by God in the flesh Himself. And we see that the very world in which Israel was born, that required things like the war with the Amalekites, is not the world God is asking his followers to live into. It is where we start, and there are certain things that must be done to survive in that world. But that world is not our future. And through Jesus, we are seeing a different ethical standard, a different way of living, that we can imagine will set us free from the kind of tyranny that sin has over us and over all the structures of our world. So I think we can recognize that God commanded the Israelites to do this when he did, and yet at the same time realize that the same will not be asked of Christians, because it is in us, Christians from all nations on earth, Jew and Gentile alike, it is in us that the fullness of God's revelation to humanity can be realized. It's in us that the very patterns and systems of a world that requires things like the war with the Amalekites and continues to require wars today, which are way more genocidal than we want to admit that they are. Every battle for peace is a battle to eliminate a culture and to unify disparate peoples under one cultural ideology. And that is what was at stake in the Amalekite order, that the cultural values of that people group so corrupted would be wiped out. No Christian should attempt to do that today because of Jesus. But that is not to say that God did not command it in the past.